Well, good morning, church. Uh, let me be the next or the next person to tell you welcome into this place here. My name is Blair Hayes. I'm one of the pastors here. I don't often speak on Sunday morning, though, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. One, we have been uh, blessed with a couple of really, really gifted teachers in Chad and Andy. And so they do the majority of the teaching each week and then we get incredible teaching every week from those guys. And the second reason is it's not really my role here at the church. My role at the church is uh, I'm the pastor, I think the title now is discipleship pastor and the most of my focus is actually in the world of Ridge Groups. And so I spend my days throughout the week um, supporting our Ridge Group leaders while they do the work of the ministry uh, in, in groups throughout the week. So when I get up here though, every once in a while I get this opportunity to speak and I welcome that opportunity this morning just because we had a unique week and so it was it an was, uh, opportunity for me to speak. Um, and so every time I get up here, I like to at least share a little bit about myself every once in a while, just give a nugget of, of who I am. And so I will share something with you guys today. Let's see. Um, uh, like most people, I would probably, maybe not most people, a lot of people, my favorite season of the year is fall. I know there's a lot of us and it sounds almost cliche at this point, but it is for me. I love just the, uh, the welcome to get a little cool off after a hot summer or whatever. That just feels good to me. I like walking outside and just getting a bit of a chill. You know, the bit of the chill that like, forces you to wear long sleeve shirts, but you can still wear shorts if you want to. That's the kind of weather I like. I love the sports that are in the fall. The fall are my favorite sports. And I just absolutely love, love, love walking into a stadium uh, on, a, on a Saturday. Um, those of you who know me know what team that is that I like to follow. Those that you don't, well, we won't try to divide up here at this point, but um, I don't know if that helps you at all, this little green here. So that's who I follow. But I love, love, love walking into that stadium, uh, especially the first time. The other thing, I love playing golf actually in the fall. It's my favorite season to play is in the fall. I don't get to play as much, but I, now I mostly just watch my son play, and so I walk behind him. But I love to see leaf change in the fall while I'm walking around the golf course. Uh, I love the fact that I can drink coffee all day long and people don't look at me like I'm a weirdo, you know? And it's not like, I don't want you to get the picture, I don't like pumpkin spice or anything like that. I'm not talking about when fall comes around, I get, yay, it's pumpkin spice, you know? I'm not walking down the street with my scarf and pumpkin spice latte in my hand. I'm not a girly, I'm a man. I don't drink that stuff. I drink toffee, not lattes, so there. <laughs> but really, fall is, is just, it, it brings me so much joy. It, it, it makes me love life. I just love so many parts of the fall and it just makes me enjoy it so much. And really that's, that's what we want, we all want, um, to, to just love life. In fact, if we took a poll in here, in fact, let's take a quick poll. Who would like to enjoy life? Let's get a, let's get a raise of hands there. You know, like, I, I would like to venture in that I got 100% hand raise, but I think we still have some cynics in here, right, that don't trust any poll whatsoever, and especially even a super easy one like that. They're like, obviously he's gonna try to sell me something right afterwards if I raise my hand here. And I feel that way when I'm using my phone, I'm on an app, and I get that thing that pops up and it says rate this app, you know, like uh, I hate it or love this app to pieces, and I hate that. 
I really do because like, obviously I love the app or I wouldn't be using it. So, but I know what they're doing. They're trying to get me to push that button. So I got to take a survey afterwards. And so I'm the cynic as well. Like, mm, I'm not doing your survey no matter what. But other than us cynics, we would all probably answer that question. Yes, I want to love life um, and, and what that would be. And, and my idea uh, of loving life might not be the same as, as yours. Um, I love Absolutely love, love, love. Sitting in the stadium with thousands and thousands of other people cheering and screaming and yelling so much that I can't speak usually the next day. And where others, their, their day of loving life looks like I'm sitting in a tree stand and I'm miles and miles away from the next person to where I could hear a leaf all the way down and hit the other leaf because it's so quiet in there. Others, your dream of loving life is probably the idea of going from store to store, looking for that perfect pair of jeans, trying on every single pair of jeans until you find that very perfect one that's exactly right. Some of us are excited about the idea of retirement, like we're looking forward to just resting after a long life of working and just getting to sit back and rest. Where others would say they would love a life where they're gonna work until the very last day they die because they wanna do meaningful work all the way up until the very end of it. But whatever truly living life and seeing good days is for you and what that would be, we all want it. But there's one thing that always, almost 100% of the time, gets in the way of us pursuing this idea of just being able to enjoy life and see good days. And that's suffering, or trouble, or hardship. However you wanna name it, suffering really gets in the way of us trying to just enjoy and have good days. Jesus talking to his disciples, and we read it later, told us in John 16 that it was gonna happen though. He said, in this world, you will have troubles. It wasn't an if, it was when. You are going to have troubles. He told his disciples this directly, it's going to happen. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us as Christians when we experience suffering, but it does. We think, I've given my life to Jesus, I'm following him, so I won't have trouble anymore. And if I do have trouble, then there's probably something wrong with God as a result of it. But Jesus is saying here to us that we're gonna have trouble and there's nothing wrong with God. Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, probably would have been right there to hear Jesus say this to him. And so we fast forward like 30 years or so, and Peter is penning this letter to the churches that we now call 1 Peter. As we go through this book, one of the themes that we're gonna see through in the entire book is the theme of suffering, and it's in every single chapter from 1 Peter, one through five. Every one of them talks through this suffering. Peter addresses this throughout the, the letter because people he is talking to and writing this letter to are scattered all around the known world. They're living in places they don't wanna live in and they're living in places where they are the minority. They don't necessarily even have rights here and their faith is not being accepted by the people around them so they are facing difficulties. This passage that we're gonna look at this morning focuses on a particular kind of suffering. It focuses on one specific type of kind of suffering that some of us will face. 
In a message I listened to this week or read about this week uh, from J.D. Greer, he's a lead pastor at a church out of Charlotte area called Summit Church. And he actually described and said that there are three types of suffering that we could face. And he said, these are kind of illustrated by the three different Joes of the Old Testament. Let me give them to you here. The first one is, the, is, is a kind of suffering that you get for doing wrong. This one is expressed to us by a guy named Jonah. See, Jonah was a guy who was given a complete command, a, a specific direction from God to go to a certain people to tell them a certain thing. He, on the other hand, did the exact opposite, got on a boat and went the, the farthest direction he could probably think, the opposite direction that he could go away from this. So God then provided him some suffering because of his disobedience in the form of sitting in the belly of a fish for a number of days. He was disobedient and experienced suffering because he did something wrong. And if you're experiencing suffering right now, it could be because you're disobedient. And the step to take is to turn and do the things that honor God. The second kind of suffering comes at a different way. It's the opposite of that. It's a type of suffering for doing right. You can think of the man named Joseph of the Old Testament when it comes to this. Joseph was a man who followed God in basically every single circumstance that he was in. He had this moment when the wife of his master actually came on to him and offered herself up to him and wanted to seduce him. And he denied her and said, no, we're not gonna do that. Um, it would be wrong and it would be a sin against God and it would be a sin against my master. Out of embarrassment, this woman accuses Joseph of raping her and he's thrown into prison for it. He did nothing wrong. In fact, he did every single thing possible to be right. He denied everything there and followed God and yet he still turned out to be thrown into prison and dealing with the hardship of it. The third type of suffering is a type of suffering for the result of absolutely no perceptible reason whatsoever. And here you can think of the man Job. He lost his family, he lost his health, he lost his wealth and all of his savings. And while we as the reader get a little bit better perspective of what happened and why he suffered the way he did, Job himself had no idea whatsoever on the reason why. Job in many ways encapsulates all the natural suffering that happens in this world that we just don't understand. Sickness and natural disasters, weird and sad coincidences that happen to us and things like that. And there are lots of verses throughout the whole of scripture that kind of bring hope through this kind of suffering. This morning though, we're not gonna look at that kind of suffering. We're gonna look at the Joseph type of suffering, the second type one, the one that suffers because you did right, because that's what Peter addresses here in 1 Peter, in chapter three. The group of people that Peter is speaking to are doing exactly what's right, they're doing what is good, they're doing what honors God, and yet they are still experiencing hardship and trouble as a result of it. I don't know how familiar you are with this part in history, but this time, most likely, Nero was the emperor. And we have some information about the way Nero viewed Christians and how he treated the, the Christians at that point, including one story that talks about where he blamed the Christians for what is known as the Great Rome Fire. And in this point, the fire basically lit up Rome to, to the point that two-thirds of the Roman city was completely destroyed. 
he falsely blamed the Christians for it because nobody really cared about the Christians anyway. They were a minority group, so it was really easy to blame them for it. And as a result, they were having trouble just living their lives at all, just being able to, to live. Because it got to such a point where eventually we see what happens is an empire-wide persecution of all Christians. Right now, living here in West Virginia or wherever you're joining us online, we aren't quite experiencing the same thing, right? Most likely we won't ever experience what the Christians felt like in the early church at that point. We aren't truly beaten for our faith, we're not spit on because we say something, and we're not killed for being a follower of Jesus. But most of us have known trouble at some point or another, and we've experienced it often because of at the hands of some other person. Suffering for doing right comes in all different shapes and sizes, either doing right or not doing anything wrong, and so you probably relate to some of these. And if we were to raise hands, we'd get a bunch of hands up. But the first one, has anybody in here ever taken what you said, twisted your words around to make it sound like you said something different than what you actually said? Anyone ever accused you of doing something wrong that wasn't at all your fault? I know my kids have dealt with this apparently. <laughs> Because I hear that phrase all the time, it's not my fault, it was his fault, you know, kind of thing. But maybe some of us have actually truly dealt with that. Anyone ever gossiped about you and spread things that were not true or just partially true and they just exaggerated them just a little bit? Anyone in here ever dealt with someone's jealousy and in such a way that person was just mean and they just said mean things for no reason whatsoever other than maybe they just didn't like their own life very much? Anyone ever been the, uh, the object of a bias because of a gender or a race or possibly just some preconceived notion about you that they think you would act this way? Students that are in here, do you ever get wrongly accused by your parents for doing something that they said that you should have picked up in the house or that you, it's your fault or something's broken but it really was your brother or sister? You have something to learn this morning as well. But we could probably all, and most of us would answer at least yes to, a, to at least one of those situations. So we understand trouble at the hands of other people. But how is a Christ follower, how is someone who lives this counterintuitive life supposed to respond in these kind of situations? And I think Peter addresses that a little bit here in chapter three and where we're gonna spend our time this morning. So if you want to turn your Bibles, if you have them with you, we're gonna be in chapter three. Uh, we're gonna start in verse eight. Um, I'm gonna be out of the ESV version, uh, if, you, if that matters to you, but you can follow along. The, if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screens or you can download the app uh, that we have that has that available for you. But as we get ready to read scripture, let me pray for us this morning. God, I just wanna thank you um, for your scripture. I want to thank you that you gave us your living word in order to show us how to walk this life, in order to see what the early church was about. I thank you for the truth that Peter walked alongside Jesus and he heard directly from Jesus and he heard the examples and he heard the guidance that Jesus gave him. And then generations later, he passed it on to the early church and he tried to explain to them, here's what Jesus said. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is the life in which that he calls new Christians and believers in him to follow after it. And 
Generation and generation and generation have come, but we are here now looking still for the answers to live this life out in the Christ way, to follow Jesus in that way. And so God, I thank you for that we have this letter that went to the early church and we have this direction on how we're supposed to live this life. God, I ask that you would help us to submit your word into our hearts. I pray, God, that you would transform our lives by the words that you give us, that we might be able to live this out and that we might be an example of what it means to follow you. And as a result, people would catch a glimpse of the grace that you offer them because of the lives that we live. Help us to understand what this counterintuitive life is all about and then live it out because that's what you called us to. Make the word come alive to us today, God. Amen. All right, so we're gonna be in 1 Peter 3, and we're gonna start with verse eight. And here's what it says. It says, finally, wait a minute, just a second. You're not supposed to stop after reading one word, but I, I really had to because this is so awesome to me, this word finally here, because Peter is only about halfway through this book that he's about to write. He's got pages and pages more to write in this letter that he's gonna send out to the churches. And it would be like me saying, in conclusion, and then continuing on for 20 more minutes of talking after that. And what I love about that is that I have this reputation. That's, that's who I am. Everybody says Blair's the long-winded one at everything. And so I love it because I can go back to here and say, hey, I'm just following Peter here. I wanna just be like him. You know, the rock of the church, you wanna be mad at him too? <laughs> so thank you, Peter. But anyway, 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you, this means everybody, because Peter just got done talking to wives, to slaves, to different people, employed by different people, and he says, all of you, all of you Christ followers, this is for all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter says our first response that we need to have to suffering, if we're gonna live the counterintuitive life to suffering at the hands of other people is that we need to stick together. We could spend an entire message on this one verse alone. It has incredibly, incredible five great commands that are directed to us on how we're supposed to live as brothers and sisters in the faith and how we're supposed to treat each other in Christ. The first one said there, we are to have unity of mind. This means that we are to be unified in our goal and desire to see God glorified in all ways. And this doesn't mean that we all need to vote the same way or think the same way or that we all need to have the same view of whether our country should be reopening at this point or whether we feel like we should all have the same way that we wear masks and whether they do good or do not do good. But what it does mean is that we are to be united in the vision to love people, to love God, and to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed everywhere. The second thing it says there is we're supposed to have sympathy for other people. And this means that we're recognizing that other people are in pain and coming alongside of them in and through their pain, no matter what the source of the pain is. Third thing there says we're to have brotherly love. And this is the idea that we're gonna care for each other in the family of God, so much so that it would be just like the way you would take care and protect your brother and sister in real life. The fourth thing said there that we're to have tender hearts towards each other. Your translation, if you're reading it, might have the word compassion in it there, and that works too. And sympathy and compassion, they seem very close to the definition, and they are. 
Where they differ is, is that sympathy is actually identifying with someone else about how they feel, and compassion or tenderheartedness is the action that goes along with that. The fifth thing that it said there is that we are to have humble minds. And this means that we're supposed to be open and teachable. And I feel like this is directed in two ways. First, we need to be, have humility towards God, which isn't too hard because he's God and we're not. But the other way is that we're supposed to have humility towards each other, and that one's harder. Are we willing to let them speak into our lives and specifically, we have to be willing to let them speak into our lives about how we respond to being wronged at the hands of other people. Man, I think a super incredible application for today, and we could end right here, was to be able to take this verse, just this one verse, and to pick even one of those things off that list there, to have unity of mind, to be sympathetic, to, be, to have brotherly love, to be tenderhearted, to have a humble mind and say, God, God, transform my life so that I might have just this one quality. And then we watch and to see how God transforms our church by each one of us taking on that one quality. It'd be incredible. People would look at this church in such a unique way because it would be different from everything else they're used to seeing. But I also think that we can see from this verse is that when we are wronged by someone else, we need other people around us to have a proper response. A natural tendency for a lot of us would be to isolate or to suffer alone. The fact that Peter is giving this command means that it doesn't come easy to us. He wouldn't even need to say it if we just did it. But Peter says, you're gonna have to battle through this one. We have to walk towards people and have unity in mind. This is the way of a counterintuitive life. When others retreat and isolate, we stick together. If we're left to our own devices and responses, we're gonna lash out in anger. We're gonna retaliate. We're gonna respond to suffering by making the other person suffer too because that's what they did to us. And that's what we actually see Peter address right in the very next verse in 1 Peter 3, 9. He says this, do not repay evil for evil or reveling for reveling. That word reveling there actually means insult. I don't really use that word very much, but it says, do not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. A counterintuitive life responds to suffering by blessing. My response to that is, what? Peter, what are you talking about here? You want me to respond to a person who hurts me by blessing them? You have lost your mind, Peter. Peter, I can get behind the first response. That one makes at least a little bit of sense to me that when I'm suffering, that I gotta get a bunch of people to circle up around me to help me in the midst of my suffering. I can get behind that response. I can even get behind the response of, I, can, I need to have compassion on others in the midst of their suffering. But this, if someone does something bad to me, I need to correct the situation. I need to settle the score. That's the fair thing to do. That's what any normal person would do. But when we return 
insults for insults, it always escalates the situation every single time. It will never, ever de-escalate it. I feel like I have this battle with my boys all the time. I kind of talk to, talk to them about this a lot. I'm like, the moment you start insulting back or the moment you need to get back at someone for what they did, it will always go further every single time. We have this incredible neighborhood we live in. I, I love our neighborhood, it's awesome. Our kids have so many kids to play with. It is, it is really a great place. But about every other day, two of the kids started fighting with each other. It's inevitable, it will happen. They're gonna fight with each other. And it usually starts by one of them saying something in the likes of, I'm better than you at blank. The other one responds immediately, no, I'm better than you at blank. And then we start with a name calling of some name calling and they call them this. Then it gets back, it's a name calling. Then we get to the place where the loser dance comes out. You guys know this, take the L, you know this dance, it's like this. You go like this in front of them. And then they do that so close in the face when it gets to that point. Then we gotta get a push. Then it goes to a pinch. Then there's a punch and then there's all kinds of crying. And this happens about every other day in, in our neighborhood. Because it always escalates. And Peter is trying to encourage them with the opposite. Instead of insults back, bless them and you will obtain a blessing. I'd love to give you a really great example of when this happened in my life where I was, when someone hurt me and then I returned it with blessing, but I'm not going to. I'd like to chalk it up as humility, but the truth is, I just don't have many first person examples of that. And I don't say that happily or proudly, but this one steps faith where most of us struggle. And I think I fail here, and I can probably hide even in the church because it's so strange to see someone that no one ever expects anyone to bless someone else when they hurt them. But if we want to really have a counterintuitive life, if we really wanna live a counterintuitive life and not just say we want a counter in life, then it responds so uniquely different that when people see it, they say, whoa, how? Why in the world would you do that? They hurt you, why are you treating them this way? And we get to respond with, Jesus did it for me and he's called me to do it for others that they might get a glimpse of his grace and that they might turn to him. For the counterintuitive life, it's maybe one of the most counterintuitive life things that we're gonna see through this entire message is this idea that when someone hurts you, you bless them back. A third response that we can have to suffering is to hold your tongue. For the next couple of verses that we're reading there, Peter actually is quoting David from Psalm 34. And if you have your Bible, you might notice that there's italicized words, and that usually means that this is uh, taken from a scripture in another part of the Bible. And Peter says here, quoting David, he says in 3.10, he says, for, oh, let me turn that TV on. For whoever desires to love life 
and see good days. That was our poll we took earlier, right? For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Peter tries to help us here, really. He tries to help us here to not compound our suffering with our words. When someone is causing us to suffer, our natural response is to at least let them have it with our words. Maybe I actually won't punch them in the face because of their L train that they give me, but I'm going to let everyone know all about them. I'm gonna tell everybody else what kind of a snake this person is. The thing about our words are, is once they're said, you can't get them back. In Ridge Kids, we've illustrated this before in the past with, by giving them a, a thing of toothpaste. And we say, take this toothpaste and squeeze out all the toothpaste. Now, while, those, while that toothpaste is coming out, imagine it, the words coming out of your mouth and, and, and all those things you're saying. And squeeze it all out of there. Get it all out of there, and it's there. And those are your words right there. Now, to fix it, put those words back in the toothpaste. Get your, put that toothpaste back in there. It's impossible to do. And it's the same for when we lash out and we say words when we're in the midst of our suffering, we can never get them back in. Peter's saying, if you wanna see good days ahead, it would be better for you if you just kept your mouth shut. What you're gonna say right now is going to hurt you. So keep your tongue from evil. And I won't spend a ton of time just talking through this, this idea because this particular uh, point is all about keeping our tongues closed. And we've said that. We just came out of a series called Stay Positive where we talked all about the power of what we say and what we do there. But I do wanna remind us that it also goes for our thumbs too, right? Because what we text and what we put on Facebook and what we type in an email, maybe we wouldn't, probably wouldn't even say it out loud. We wouldn't let ourselves say that out loud. But Peter knows that whatever comes off our tongue and whatever comes out of our thumbs, whatever happens, once it gets going, we can't stop it and we can't get it back. Fourth, what do we do to respond to suffering at the hands of other people? Is we need to pursue peace. First Peter 3.11, it goes on. He goes on to say this. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. It's one thing to hold your tongue and your thumbs, and it's another to actually pursue peace with others. When someone has wronged you, usually do your best to basically distance from them, to get away from them. And this is somewhat, this, this point is somewhat a continuation from the blessing point. But it actually takes it just a little step further because it goes past the idea that I'm just gonna treat people kindly, and it goes to the point that rather I'm gonna make this and create a place of peace with them. Usually we just wanna get past things or get over it. But this takes it to the step of saying, I'm actually gonna pursue peace with this other person. This is walking through this hard time that we just experienced in order to get to the other side. Peter goes on in verse 12 and he says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous about doing what's good? But even if you should suffer righteousness for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. The last thing we see here and the fifth response that we can have is that we need to act or don't act, but do either one of those things knowing that God has your back. 
These verses give us a little more of the how we're to respond. And we're to respond by having faith that God has our back through all of this. We trust in him to care for us, even when we walk this way. We see that God's face is against the evil. We don't need to take revenge or hurt others when they wrong us because we trust that God is watching. We believe that God has our backs. And when others hurt us, they will answer to him and we can trust him that he will right the injustices for us. It says, his eyes are watching us and his ears are there to us. He is listening to his children when they cry out. We have the attention of the father and like a father, he wants to care for and protect us. Peter wants to remind us that you are being wronged, God is still there. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. You can bring those cares to him and know that he cares for you. But I also think that we can, through these verses, we can see a little bit of the why we respond in the ways to those who wrong us. As elected exiles, this identity that we've taken on through this series, as elected exiles forgiven and made holy by God through Jesus' work on the cross, we desire to please God. Jesus' sacrifice for us is so incredible, we wanna find different ways to just say, thank you. Words don't do it, but living our lives in this kind of sacrificial way that brings honor to him is what we have to offer him. In the last chapter, 1 Peter 2, it says three down there, but it's two, chapter two, verse 20, it says, of course, you get no credit for being patient if you're beaten for doing wrong, if you have to be punished for doing something wrong, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it's at the means of suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. Peter talks through this idea that if you do something wrong and you suffer it for it, there's nothing special about that. If you did something out of disobedience and, you were, and, and someone wronged you and you got the punishment for it, that's just justice. That's nothing special. But the life that you've been called to, a truly counterintuitive life, is when you suffer when you're doing good and you respond in a way like Jesus would, a gospel-minded way, that's a life that stands out. That's a unique life. That's a counterintuitive life. And so with the eyes of the Lord on us, we live out this counterintuitive life because we wanna please him. Our memory verse two weeks ago was 1 Peter 2, 9, and it said, but you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. When we live this counterintuitive life, even when we are wronged by other people, we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness. We declare the truth that we are a chosen people bought by Jesus. We declare praises of him that no matter what I'm experiencing in this life, I am blessed. We help to point others to the truth that this life isn't the one we're putting our trust in. We have a future hope. We are exiles. We are exiles, elected exiles, and this isn't our home. My hope is in the fact that Jesus has prepared a different home for me, and I live in such a way that others see that too, and they can catch a glimpse of the grace that he has to offer. Let me pray for us this morning.
God, I thank you that you provide us your word and you give us direction on how to live. And through Peter, you called on the early church to live out in such a unique way while they were experiencing such immense suffering that most of us will never experience. But what we do experience from time to time is trouble at the hands of somebody else. And God, we wanna respond in such a way. We wanna live in such a counterintuitive way from the rest of the world that others have to ask the question, why are you doing that? And we get to answer with the response that because Jesus did it for me, I can't help but to share it with other people because I understand what God did so much for me that I want others to experience it too. And our whole lives transform and change so that we follow after him. And that others, and we live this unique life. God, thank you for this church and for the people around us that we might be able to circle up together, that we might have other people that help to push us with the response that we need to have in these kind of times so that you are glorified and praised so that that is always at the point of our minds is the unity of circled up and that we might all be here together to glorify you. God, it's difficult and we understand that it's difficult and we experience this suffering and we don't understand how to follow through with that. But God, we ask that you transform our lives from the inside. We ask that Holy Spirit, you do big things in us that we don't any longer conform to the way the world is, but that we transform by you changing our thought process to such a point that we live in a life that says, this is not our home. We are exiles here. And so we live uniquely different because our hope is in the future. And we are secure in that hope. God, I pray for this week. I pray that this would be a week that we live out this way in such a way that others ask the question why. Thank you for what you did on the cross, God. Amen.